Hello, rhetorical listeners. Welcome to another episode of The Big Rhetorical Podcast. I'm your host, Charles Woods. The 41st episode of The Big Rhetorical Podcast features a collaboration with the Coalition of Feminist Scholars in the History of Rhetoric and Composition. The Coalition of Feminist Scholars in the History of Rhetoric and Composition fosters inquiry in feminist histories, theories, and pedagogies of rhetoric and composition. As a network of diverse teachers and scholars, the coalition promotes intersectionality, collaboration, and communication in the following areas. The advancement of feminist research and pedagogy across histories, locales, identities, materialities, and media. The education and mentoring of feminist faculty and graduate students in scholarship, research methods, praxis, and the politics of the profession. The coalition cultivates a dynamic, intellectually challenging, and professionally nurturing community. They welcome and sustain all who do feminist work, inclusive of all genders, sexualities, races, classes, nationalities, religions, abilities, and other identities in their research and classrooms. And so becoming part of the coalition just connected me with all of these people who were developing research that was inspiring and helpful to me in my own research. It's been really, really useful to have those conversations, whether it's been a formal mentoring um, or in just the way she's been able to guide me towards voices and work of really how can I reconceptualize my dissertation in new ways and really intersectional ways, which has been really helpful. Um, mentoring is at the heart of what the coalition does, and it's really a, re- a serious reason why we exist as an organization, but it's also some of the most invisible labor that we do in our jobs. So I really would actually like to highlight those processes and explain to people like, this is work. This is labor. Lord knows if I ever have a student that wants to do a digital chapter, I don't know how quickly even I will sign on for it because it is a lot of work. All the programming we offer, whether it's online mentoring, manuscript mentoring, conference mentoring, uh, and and we've always been committed to really empowering the membership to be who they are as well. I hope that this collaboration serves as both a commemoration to the important work the Coalition does and a platform to share their mission. I was able to schedule interviews with members of the Coalition, including Michael Healy, Temptatious McCoy, Patricia Fancher, Sveta Bonilla, Therese Graben, and Wendy Scherer. But we will start with a chat I had with longtime Coalition member Sarah Mosley. I hope you enjoy the big rhetorical podcast collaboration with the Coalition of Feminist Scholars in the History of Rhetoric and Composition. Yes, I am a longtime coalition member, um, I'd say since 2011, and I have, since in that time, I've volunteered on different committees, 
and I'm a regular presence for when when there's something sent out to a vote or I'm involved in it as as a member and the coalition is actually well I'll say the reason that I got involved with the coalition was because my dissertation research was around feminist rhetorics and there were there were some people at my university program that were studying feminist rhetorics as well but my immediate local pool was a little bit narrow. And so becoming part of the coalition just connected me with all of these people who were developing research that was inspiring and helpful to me in my own research. And, and it created a community. And in fact, my research around contemplative rhetorics uh, grew out of my participation in the coalition when I taught yoga at the 2017 Feminisms and Rhetorics Conference. And so that was, that was a place where really that experience and, and other research happening by coalition members at that time really motivated me to take my research in this more applied sense to do something that, that had a more activist leaning as well as feeling like, oh, like this is a, this is a community where, where you can do this work. This isn't looked down upon or seen as, you know, less valuable or less academic, like, like maybe in some other academic communities, more applied work isn't seen as, as highly intellectual. Um, whereas in the coalition, there were a lot of opportunities. And then my work my research on yoga was supported and lifted up by the community. And from teaching yoga at that conference with feminisms and rhetorics, someone there said, oh, well, I'm helping organize the Four Seas Conference, which is much larger scale. And she said, oh, well, it would be great if we could bring yoga to the Four Seas Conference. So it was just a great example of a community working together to support an idea that, you know, was coming from someone who's young in their career, who, you know, isn't, well, I don't know. It, w it was a great example of a community coming together to support applied research. So, yeah, my, my work with the coalition has been supported even as it's moved away from traditional academic spheres. So you've been involved with the coalition for almost a decade. I mean, so I wonder what are some things either that you've been involved with or from afar as just a coalition member? Uh, what are some of the things that you're most proud of, the things that the coalition has taken up or been involved with or produced in the last uh, decade? That's a big question. That's a huge question. <laughs> I knew that it was. I knew that it was, just so you know. Uh, yeah. But I think increasingly the coalition is supporting activist work. Even the 2019 conference, they're, they're increasingly supporting activist work and they're, and they're like leaning into a place where where I think they can make a difference in academic spheres, in classrooms, and even more broadly. So you, 
you mentioned earlier when we were talking that the coalition has played a major role in in your all to act opportunities. And so I want to make sure that we cover that fully. So I think that I want to leave this kind of open-ended and let you kind of uh, go for a bit. Uh, the things that you want to talk about, uh, the coalition and then hybrid all-tech positions. I think that, firstly, I would, I would say just to acknowledge that a lot of graduate students aren't prepared for alt-ac careers. Okay. And I think that's changing now. Mm. But something that I found is that alt-ac work is not seen as, as valuable or intellectual or academic as tenure-track professor positions. And, and I think that's that still is a reality that many people face. And it is continues to be valuable even as graduate students have more opportunities to prepare for alt-ac careers. It continues to be valuable that there are spaces outside of your university department that, that provide guidance. The coalition has this incredible extensive mentoring program around around your research and having those resources, having those conference panels, having those sessions, that really makes a difference for people to find their footing, especially if they're in a department that doesn't prepare them as well for all that careers. And, and some people come into PhD programs knowing that they're going to be looking outside of academia. And some people don't come in with that awareness. I entered my PhD program thinking that maybe I did want to be a professor. And then, and then I tried that out. And then I found something better that was a better fit. But but it's it can be a difficult transition to make. So I think the coalition has has just offered resources and support and encouragement, and that's something that's that's really valuable, especially if your if your department doesn't offer that. And and maybe increasingly departments are offering that, but also I'm not so sure about that. I talk to a lot of grad students, and I think one of the things, a theme that, you know, is apparent through some of the conversations that we have is a lack of, of mentoring within the department. I know that that's come up more than a handful of times through producing, you know, this specific podcast. And so actually, when I was exploring the website and preparing for the collaboration, the mentoring tab, the mentoring page on the site is one of the things that was the most interesting to me, um, not only because I want to promote this opportunity for mentoring, which many, like you you know, alluded to, many of us lack, but I wonder about your experiences with this part of the coalition. Have you been in both roles as a mentor and a mentee? I have not been in the role of being a mentor. So could you talk just a little bit about your time as a mentee in this and through and, and the mentorship that you receive through the coalition? I think a strength of the coalition is is their interest in a broad range of work 
connected to feminist rhetorics. Mm-hmm. My work now is is a little out of the box. My work in my dissertation was about women firefighters. And so, and I previously was a woman firefighter myself. And I don't know why I ever thought I might want to be a professor if I enjoyed being a firefighter. But yeah. <laughs> the, the twist the switch. Turn, Yeah, yeah. So I was working on an article draft about women entering a community from, from the kind of marginal outside edges and, and how do they move in towards the center of that community? How does that community change over time? And I felt like this is, this is like a really niche kind of project. But the, this was with the 2017 Feminisms and Rhetorics Conference. They, they invited people to submit for mentoring and kind of creating those mentor-mentee relationships. And I thought, well, I would really, I would really value some, some outside eyes on my work. And I was, I was, I'm so impressed that the coalition undertakes this effort of inviting people to, to submit, to be mentors and to be mentees. And then they go through and they, and they thoughtfully partner people up. And this just must be a massive project. This is a huge effort. And so I was partnered with a woman who does disability studies and it was it was such a good partnership and we met together at the conference and she had read my work she had so many notes to share with me and she brought such a helpful perspective to my work that maybe I wouldn't have thought of reaching out to someone who does disability studies with my project but actually it really brought rich insights into my work and and then we continued to be in touch over email um, as I continue to work and revise the piece. I think that that maybe in some ways this this might seem like a like a small example, but it was it was so meaningful to me that the coalition offered this, that they put such thoughtful work into creating these relationships, and that people coalition members were really invested. This this woman who I'd never met before, she really took time. Um, and so I think this says something about the coalition, and I think it says something about the coalition members, too. That's excellent. Oh, opportunity. Wow. Like... Michael Healy is a graduate student coalition member. Um, I am Michael Healy. Um, I am at Florida State University. I am a fourth year PhD candidate in the rhetoric and composition program. Um, So I'm at that point where I'm working on a dissertation. Um, And I have been involved with the coalition for about four and a half years um, after uh, proposing and getting accepted into my first Feminisms and Rhetorics conference, um, which was at Arizona State, which was four and a half years ago. Um, it was also my first ever national conference, so um, some of those sorts of things. I know that for many folks, not just folks who work directly with the coalition, but for other folks working in rhetoric, writing studies, and all tech careers all over mm-hmm. the place, yep. FemRed is, is a great conference not only for the content, but also for the community, right? Mm-hmm. 
And so I wonder, is could you speak a bit to uh, the communities that you've been involved in within the coalition and also mm-hmm. communities that have formed or blossomed as a result of the work that the coalition has done that you've been involved with? I mean, ultimately, the first thing that brought me to the coalition was a community in my master's program. Um, I had been by uh, sort of roped in to the master's program uh, through a fantastic mentor of mine, uh, Tammy Kennedy. She's at the University of Nebraska Omaha. I had gone back to school to pursue a secondary ed, uh, so an, ME, an accelerated MED program, and ended up in a comp theory class that was taught by Dr. Kennedy that was heavily inflected by um, feminist rhetoric all the way through in feminist compositional theories and approaches. Out of that, he was like, you're going to be a TA next year. And I was like, what? <laughs> um, and uh, was able to then uh, you know, really enter into collaboration with her, with the community, put in a proposal for feminisms and rhetorics that year, ultimately out of a project that I had done for a class of hers um, called Writing Women's Lives. I did a digital archival uh, profile of my grandmother who had gone to the same university I was getting my master's at when it was still just a uh, city college, some of those sorts of things, and I was able to present on that. Um, but really is that community there being invited in in the first place that even led me to this sort of work and be involved in, in the coalition. Throughout, I've always found myself to be the listening and willing participant in other people's adventures, it feels like. You now, whether it be uh, the side conversations at Feminisms and Rhetorics, I had some fantastic ones this last year in Charlottesburg, um, both with you know, current collaborators and then other people that I've met through the conference. The conference in uh, Dayton a couple of years ago was really one where I, I've got a whole network of people that I now am communicating with um, everywhere from Milwaukee to North Georgia out in California. Obviously, the, the next gen group is a part of that as well. But I feel like I just keep on accepting invitations. And it's, I've been, it's been gracious enough for people to extend invitations to me and to see that I have uh, been able to offer some things there. You talk very highly in, uh, in a nuanced way about your mentors that you had at the <laughs> University yeah. of Nebraska. Mm-hmm. And I know that mentoring is one of the really keystones mm-hmm. of the coalition and the work that they do. Could you talk a bit about the mentoring you've received or been a part of as a result of your work with the, mm-hmm. with the coalition? Um, the coalition... My the majority of my interactions with them have been through conferences, whether it be feminisms and rhetorics or the work of the coalition at Seas, and they have always pushed me, whether it be in the larger settings or on the the more one-on-one small group mentor settings, to push me to be a better version of myself, um, of being able to listen to others, take their pers- uh, uh, take their positions, take their their knowledges, what their understandings are, bring into my classrooms. Um, I'm teaching a history of rhetoric class right now that is heavily influenced by um, the talks that I've had at Feminisms and Rhetorics from Dr. Kennedy as that advisor, from my partner, Jesse Thompson, who's also in the program here with me. Um, and uh, we've done a lot of collaborative work together in developing classes, working with students. Um, I have a lot of student participation in those classes. They could help choose readings and stuff like that. And that was a that was a practice that I picked up from a panel at that first Feminisms and Rhetorics is help your students design your class. 
um, and stuff like that, which has been a really sort of powerful uh, piece there, um, to very intentionally choosing uh, Dr. Graben as my dissertation advisor. Um, now she has been immeasurably useful both in those conversations with the coalition, um, in talking through things, whether it be some of the things right now with the coronavirus or um, talking through things with the C's in Kansas City where the coalition chose not to attend that year um, and participate in those ways. It's been really, really useful to have those conversations, whether it's been a formal mentoring um, or in just the way she's been able to guide me towards voices and work of really how can I reconceptualize my dissertation in new ways and in really intersectional ways, which has been really helpful. You know, pushing me in directions towards data feminism and things that have been uh, super influential for the work that I am doing. But really, it's been people have challenged me to be, to see that things aren't good enough and to listen and to try and come up with new ways to work with other people to solve problems and do things. So you mentioned you're in the fourth year mm -hmm. of the PhD program yes. and you've got a dissertation advisor. Yes. So you ha you have some perhaps parts of a dissertation or yes. a dissertation project. Uh -huh. uh, do you mind sharing a bit about the work that you're doing? Mm -hmm. And perhaps if you can, if it's part, if it mm -hmm. makes sense to tie it mm -hmm. back to the coalition. Sure. Yeah. The, the where, where I'm at with that project is I am in the final revision stages of my prospectus. I defend it in a few weeks and then move forward to writing more of the entire dissertation. Um, what I am actually looking at is I am um, using a, a data curation approach that is specifically, sorry, my dog's bothering me. That's uh, okay. Uh, using a, a data curation approach to re-examine published scholarship from rhetoric and composition in the 1990s. Um, mm. So specifically looking at the social turn, and I'm looking at the intersection of invention, uh, creativity, and text technologies and how that influences our current understandings of invention um, and sort of framing the current moment of a disciplinary turn where there is um, no work on specializations, developing of organizations such as the coalition, um, no, such as you know, the cultural rhetorics, such as um, you know, computers and composition, where you've got these subspecialties within um, rhetoric and composition as a whole, um, of using this current moment in our understandings of invention to look back. Um, so I'm actually working with a set of 4,000-some journal articles and doing data visualization and analysis out of it, um, using comp uh, specific uh, data feminist approach to look for intersections of voices in uh, citational maps and politics, of keywords and their trends over time. Um, and really the idea is to... Um, hopefully craft a new data-inflected historiography that can be both um, sort of attentive to these computational methods of uh, analysis, um, but also seeks to be intersectional and work to some feminist work. Um, ultimately, the work of uh, Dr. Graben, uh, so Therese Graben and Patricia Sullivan have been really influential in putting this project together of reconceptualizing what um, archives mean, what it means to be participatory in archives and in historiography, um, what it means to, you know, think about doing networked humanities and big data type approaches in a way that doesn't just flatten the narrative to numbers and erase people. Um, and so I've been sort of very intentionally attending panels the last two years at different conferences and, um, you know, grabbing work uh, from particular people that has been recommended to me. Um, that tries to do feminist data work. And ultimately, 
the the interests in the people behind data, which is really interesting to me, um, came from a lot of my sort of initial like, how does this, how, some of these flattening conversations of history that I saw people troubling in conferences and in these conversations. So I guess it's pretty fair to say that the coalition has had a pretty major influence on the work <laughs> that you're doing in your dissertation. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, I mean, whether it be, I mean, some of the first, uh, I'm, I'm constantly turning to, um, no coalition members work in patho things that I had uh, seen in um, presentations and things along those lines. Also, just in the some of the conversations that I've had with people before panels, after panels, you know, sitting in the hotel lobby, um, have all been really influential. Of well, did you think about this or what about that? Um, that that sort of those really sort of informal moments have been really helpful. So. How does your own positionality impact the work that you do? Not the work that you do, not just, mm -hmm. but specifically, I guess, with the coalition. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, one of the one of the the biggest things that I have learned from, I mean, first going to grad school, and then second having, um, you know, the the pleasure of being able to work with so many uh, with the coalition with feminisms and rhetorics, um, and things is just a lot of humility and just a lot of like I've been really good I've gotten much better about acknowledging my own positionality how that's influencing what I'm seeing and being able to listen with, to others um and be able to actually sort of incorporate that uh you know there's a lot of these things that I I almost always anytime I'm doing something with the coalition or the conference um feel like an interloper like, like, I, like, I, like, I know I'm welcome and I know I've been invited to these spaces and I know that there's a reason that I'm there, but I can't help but feel like that, that I'm, the fact that I'm there is something that, of, of an interloper in those ways, like, that I am coming from that, I mean, ultimately that privileged position and uh, of, of, you know, the, uh, the white male academic or whatever, and that, Part of my responsibility is being a good listener and and really being able to incorporate that um, and uh, know really value that work and be able to point out you know you now be aware of my whiteness and be aware of my maleness and be aware of the privileges that come with that in a way that I I mean I wear it on my sleeve in my classrooms and and things and a and really sort of thinking about that in a, a way I don't think I did before um, now really working with within these areas so is there anything that we didn't cover well in our in our chat now that uh, you think that you want to mention i mean more than anything else if someone says you should write a proposal for feminisms and rhetorics because it's a great conference you should <laughs> um i mean that's that's one piece um i mean ultimately i think the biggest reason i'm here at this program is uh, that first conference at Arizona State, I was starting my second year of my master's program. I was applying to PhD programs. Um, my uh, partner, Jesse, and I were at coffee one of the mornings, and she spots Dr. Yancey, who was at Florida State, and says, you're Dr. Yancey. And she says, yes, I am, but I have had my coffee. Here's a grad student. Um, and then we just bonded with a bunch um, with Molly Daniels, who's now at um, University of North Georgia, um, and then some other of the FSU graduate students that were there and both sort of 
got a real good feel for the program, got a lot of good advice. We're able to talk with these people and still talk with these people. Um, ultimately, Yancey came to our panel, which was a little intimidating. Uh, it was in a very small room uh, at Arizona State, but it was it was a lot of fun. Um, and I think ultimately that those moments of of real just sort of comfort and familiarity and hospitality that exist at that conference and within the coalition, that willingness to both listen but call out at the same moment of being inviting but also pushing towards like this uh, towards a betterment of the world is something that I really was I found enticing and want to be a part of and and I continue to be a part of and I continue to struggle with and I continue to think that that struggle is worthwhile and I think that's probably the biggest thing that that I've learned from this thanks so much for chatting uh-huh. with me of course thank you Temptatious McCoy is the incoming associate editor of Patho Journal. So my name is Temptatious McCoy. Um, I'm assistant professor of English with a focus in technical writing at Bowie State University. So this is my first year here um, and I enjoy that. (laughs) Where is Bowie State? Uh, So Bowie State is, um, I guess, so here's the thing, right? Given traffic sucks around here. So technically I'm like 10 miles outside of DC, like south, but like it's probably will take me 45 minutes to an hour to get to DC from here. Oh, but, no. like, but we have a train here, so I can catch a train into DC like in no time. Okay. You enjoying it there? I am. I am. It is um, the oldest HBCU in Maryland. Um, I went to an HBCU, a historically black college university. So I was very excited to get back to my roots. Super cool. So what is your role with uh, the coalition? I have just been selected, I believe, as the associate editor of Pathos. So I'm excited for that. Um, I will be overseeing book reviews, I think reconsiderations and things of that nature. One thing that I'm really aiming to do is make sure that we're amplifying and continuing to showcase Black scholars, um, women of color, and kind of pushing their work forward so it can be seen more. And I know that that's something that's super important to you, not only in your work with the coalition, but also through your dissertation, and also through some of the resources that you have constructed for upcoming conferences, specifically for C's. What is that resource? Yes. So I was, um, every year what happens, so this will be my third or fourth year going to C's. Um, C's and ATTW overlaps because um, I go to both of them at the same time. And what I was noticing in the panels with predominantly Black scholars, our scholars of color are um, historically marginalized scholars, it was only us in the room. So in other words, it was a Black panel with other Black people in the room. So it's kind of like you were like preaching to the choir, you know? And what I noticed was it was becoming so hard to figure out like where these panels were, how to get to them quickly. So I was like, okay, I'm going to create a spreadsheet for ATTWNCs where people can just go ahead and add their panels, and then people will go ahead and sign up to cover these panels via social media. So that way, we can ensure there's coverage everywhere. Um, I know for myself, and I cannot think of what her real name is. Her name is Patty something on Twitter. 
um, she and I always end up in rooms together. So we're both tweeting the same panel, but like one of us could probably go to another panel. We just don't know where we need to be. So I figure like this will be a really good resource for us to amplify scholars of color and to make sure there are people in the room to actually cover and blast this research. Because you know, we all like know the hot names, like, oh, I wanna go see this person. So we run to that panel, but the other panel is empty. Or, um, and this year I will say that they've gotten better at it. I've seen in the past panels with black scholars or scholars that's kind of covering the same type of work that's shaking the system. All of those panels happen at the same time. And we all can't be in three places at one time. Right. And you know, we want to support one another. So it also allows us the space to support one another, but it also highlights the problematic issues with planning. Like I understand it's very difficult to plan a conference. So I do want to respect that. But like, how do you not notice that all of the panels on AAVE are all at one o'clock? Like there's no way someone didn't catch that. So Hopefully this resource is something that I'll try to implement at other conferences, but I just wanted to be able to start it this year at season ATCW. So what are some of the reasons you wanted to get involved with the, with the coalition? Um, so when I went to FemRed, I guess it was when they were in Ohio, because I remember we drove. One thing that I was very observant about, or one thing that I caught was it was very white. I just flat out say it was a room full of white ladies, and I was bothered by that um not because of course like the racial makeup but how are we a group of feminist scholars calling for more inclusive and diverse scholarship and there's still a room of the same people in that room right so i really wanted to find ways to be involved where other scholars of color are in the room as well predominantly black women that are in the room and what kind of sparked my interest the most i was in a panel with gwendolyn Pugh. And she was talking about the rhetorics of ratchetness, right? And I was in the audience. And we were just kind of having general discussion about how this happens for Black women, how we can and cannot do these things, all of that great stuff. And a woman in the crowd stood up and was like, well, it's time we get ratchet. And she didn't understand why that was problematic. But then as I continued to reflect, I was like, you don't understand why it's problematic because you're only talking to other white women in the room. So of course, everyone in the room cheered it on because they thought it was okay. But all of the black women in the room was like, no, it's not time to get ratchet. Like, we, we all can't get ratchet. Like, that's not what we do. So I wanted to make sure that there was someone else in the room to have these conversations and to really call for people to continue to do the labor to learn as well. So just coming on in the room, pulling people in the room, I guess. Would it be fair to say that perhaps your nuanced critique of white feminism is what propelled you to be a, to become a part of the coalition, a more involved member of the coalition? Yeah, or- yeah, yeah. Um, it was. Um, I don't remember when this call. Sorry, my head was starting to hurt. <laughs> um, it was a call that came out, and I don't remember where it came from. But it was it was a call for a papers. I really wish I would remember right now. That's okay. But the. The, the problem with it was the call was rooted in white feminism. So it was missing so many elements that bothered me that I was like, and there's something that's attention I always have to address, right? Do I want to take on the labor and like be the sacrificial lamb and put myself out there? Or do I really want to like step up and find ways to have this conversation? Because, you know, a lot of times when we know better, we do better. So I like to give people the benefit of the doubt. Maybe they simply do not know. But at the same time, I still hold people accountable, right? 
So if I'm going to critique the thing, I can't critique it but so much unless I inform you more and I'm willing to learn from you the same way that you're willing to learn from me. What are some of the tactics and strategies that you plan to employ or that you've thought about as you take on this new role as associate editor of Patho mm-hmm. to actually highlight marginalized voices? So one, social media is a major thing for me. So I was speaking with trying to figure out how do we do a social media campaign. I think one thing that I'm, I'm first starting off with doing is identifying how are we how are we labeling these books as feminist works, mm. right? And does it only have to be these academic texts as well, right? Mm. You know, text that's only theoretical and things of that nature. So because a lot of the work that I look at from other Black women scholars, so a lot of that work is not theoretically, like, dense. Say, like, there's a theoretical framework around it, but it's not as dense and hitting. There's a lot of autoethnography that happens, and there's a lot of narratives and a lot of storytelling and a lot of these are going. So it's like, is that work going to be appreciated as well? So um, that's my first, like, thought, thought, right? But I really want to go ahead and start a social media campaign where I'm going to start pulling from other authors who already have their works, who may not have, like, a formal published backing on it right now. Um, and I really want to get feet on the ground and speaking more with our grad students because I believe, you know, you change the field from your grad students, not necessarily your faculty. I agree with that 100%. Right? Like, at some point, I'm going to get older and I'm going to die. Like, and it's really crazy how, like, you take that shift from grad student to faculty member, and they're like, oh. And I'm like, I'm not cool anymore. I'm not a grad student. Like, (laughs) politics, right? But I am fully aware that if you want to change a field of any sort, you do that through your grad students. Mm. So building up and, and reaching out to more graduate students of color to find out what does it look like? What texts are y'all looking for? What are you trying to learn? Instead of me kind of going the more traditional, I guess, formal route of waiting for publishers to send me books. I know how that goes, but I want to hear more of what people want to learn. Like, what are they looking um, for? And I'm planning to do that through social media. And I was really planning to do it at the upcoming conferences, but I don't know if that's happening or not. So we'll just kind of see how it plays. I don't know when you last checked your inbox, but C's is called an executive meeting uh, and we should hear something by the end of the week and i believe that the executive board for attw met last night Mm -hmm. so we'll see hopefully we'll run into each other but only if we're both gonna stay healthy after we do that exactly right exactly (laughs) i believe that your dissertation had a multimodal component yeah and do you anticipate i don't know highlighting or emphasizing perhaps new multimodal works that the coalition might be able to, I don't know how to ask this question, obviously, but maybe you might provide an answer and I'll just splice in a question. <laughs> You're fine. Um, so yeah, so for my dissertation, I, I did a digital chapter on trap karaoke and I made sure to make that chapter not serve as like an additional text, but it was actually the chapter, right? So it wasn't a supplement. No, it was not a supplement. And I was very adamant to make it not be a supplemental chapter or any supplemental text thing with it. It sounds Um, like you had some hurdles there to overcome, perhaps. 
Yes and no. I think yes that no. the thing was, you know, when you're stepping and doing something new, you got to make that argument strong and solid. So I don't think it was necessarily that I got resistance. It was that just like I had to do the work, right? Yeah. Like I had to make sure if my committee was going to be on board, my dissertation chair, Michelle Evely, was she was right there with me, but she made sure that the argument was solid. Like you can't just up and do the thing. But even being told no initially was a, like a part of my reasoning for pushing back at it. Cause I was like, if by default, the definition for dissertating means to argue, who said that we had to argue in a book? Like why is this, the, like who walked up and said, you must argue in this way. And if some, and like, and I kind of went through like a history of language. If this, if this word is like rooted in law, when have you ever went to court and seen someone read a book and throw it at the judge? Like that's not what happens. Like. Like, like, that's not how this is. So right. I, I shot to do the digital chapter. Um, hindsight, it was supposed to be like 30 minutes and it turned into almost a movie. So it was like an oh, hour wow. 15. <laughs> Don't know how that happened. <laughs> <laughs> but I think what I would like to certainly do, and I know Victor Del Hero is on this, I really want to highlight the process that is required to do that work. I think the one of the questions that I got a lot was, um, I had a videographer, a gentleman by the name of DeAndre Druitt, and he and I went to undergrad together. So I couldn't be in front of the camera and behind the camera at the same time, like period. Right. Um, and then I also was trying to write the dissertation and things of that nature. So a lot of questions became about whose authorship was it and who exactly was doing the work. But what a lot of people did not know was for every frame that you'll see on screen when you watch it, he has like second by second cut for what it is. Um, a lot of people didn't know like my background was radio production. So I did radio production for four years before I decided to like cross over and be an academic, I guess. So I really would actually like to highlight those processes and explain to people like, this is work. This is labor. Lord knows if I ever have a student that wants to do a digital chapter, I don't know how quickly even I will sign on for it because it is a lot of work. It, it genuinely is. But I really would love to highlight scholars who are stepping out, like start, because it's a barrier, right? Right. Like the way that people receive information or send it out, we can't limit it to one way or the other. And a key thing of this for me was like A.D. Carson, he did a mixtape with his dissertation, right? But then for me, the thing was, the things that I was talking about were visual. Like, you had to actually see it, and you had to actually hear it. And am I allowed to use profanity, but, like, not in a bad sure. way? Sure. Yeah, you can, okay. you can so like use profanity. <laughs> so the example I gave was, and we've all heard it, was, like, when you say bitch. So I was like, if I was to write bitch, you kind of be like, oh, okay. But if I'm like, bitch, that mean I got something to tell you. I'm like, bitch. So it's always, like, these are physical things and tones and all of these things we have to see. Like, you can't write about them. If I'm yeah. talking about hip-hop and all of these things and how people are engaging in trap karaoke, it's not effective to simply write about it. So that's, you know, redefining techcom as a whole, but just the dissertation genre as is. And hopefully the way we produce scholarship overall. Excellent. Is there anything that we haven't covered that you want to mention, final thoughts, things like that, uh, highlights, anything. I'm thinking right now, I'm really trying to look at the way that the field of tech comm is diversifying. So okay. looking at that for sure, but then I'm also trying to find ways that we can bring HBCUs 
more into conversations overall and how they are oftentimes overlooked and stepped over in terms of when we're setting standards for the academy and the students that are going to be entering the academy. Um, and it's funny because I don't know if you've been seeing recently, a lot of people were going at Megan the Stallion because her GPA was so low. She has two point, like she has a, to me, it's not low. She has a 2.7 GPA. She's attending an HBCU. And what actually for me has turned into a conversation about how do we define the standard for success or excellence? And that standard is typically set at a PWI level. So what does that 2.7 at an HBCU mean versus what does it mean at a PWI? So that's a big part of my research I'm pulling apart about where knowledge is being made. Because if you're making the TPC currently, there is not a degreed outcome TPC program at an HBCU. They're all at PWIs, right? So how do we expect to continue to produce diverse, inclusive scholarship if all that scholarship is still always coming out of one house, not coming anywhere else? So that's the thing I'm hoping to work on and blossom as I'm in this role as well. Well, thank you so much for joining me and chatting with Patricia Fancher is the outgoing director of digital media and outreach, and Sweta Bania is the incoming director of digital media and outreach. My name is Shweta Bania. I'm from Nepal, and I'm about to graduate with a doctorate degree in rhetoric and composition from Purdue University. And starting August 2020, I will join Virginia Tech as an assistant professor of rhetoric and professional and technical writing. Uh, and I'm the incoming director of outreach and digital media for Croatia. Uh, I cannot pronounce the word Croatian properly, so uh, I'll say that again. I'm the incoming director of outreach and digital media for the Croatian of Feminist Scholars and the History of Rhetoric. And I'm very happy to have this opportunity to chat with you. Thank you. And my name is Trish Fancher. I am a lecturer at the University of California, Santa Barbara, and I am the current uh, Director of Outreach and Digital Media for the Coalition. And I've been in this role for four years now. Um, I was the, also the inaugural and the first um, Director of Outreach and Digital Media. So I'm really excited to talk to you about this role and also really excited to see what awesome things Sweta is going to bring to this role um, and, and also how I can support her in her ambitions um, for the role. Trish, what first motivated you to get involved with the work that the coalition does? Let me rephrase that. What first motivated you to get involved with the coalition? When I first got my job at UCSB, I felt a little isolated outside of an intellectual community. Um, not that I don't have fantastic colleagues, but we all have high teaching loads and it's a bit stressful um, or it can be. And I missed having a cohort of scholarly community that I had in grad school. And I also had never really had a very strong kind of feminist presence um, large feminist presence in my education as much as I do primarily identify as a feminist teacher and scholar. And so 
the coalition was a place where I started going to the events. I really liked what they were starting to do on social media, even though they were sort of just getting started with it. But Jen Fishman was leading the way with that um, when she was the president of the coalition. Um, she was also a fantastic mentor of mine on a couple of um, digital feminist projects that were really um, important for the early part of my career. And her mentorship was really important for the early part of my career and continues to be um, a really important mentor for me. So Jen Fishman was the president then, and I was working with her on some projects. And I applied to be the first digital media outreach person um, just because I wanted to find some way to contribute to the coalition more, but also use um, that role to connect um, other feminist scholars who might be feeling sort of like myself, perhaps a, light, a little bit isolated or um, just in need of a feminist community to connect to. So that was a big reason why I got started with the role. Svetta, what prompted you to get involved with the coalition? When I started my PhD here as an international student, I didn't know a lot of graduate students could go to the conferences, and I saw a lot of them going to the conferences. Because back home, I thought only male professors could go to conferences and academic conferences. So um, Feminist Rhetoric's conference uh, by the was my first ever conference I applied to. And I got into it, was really excited um, to become social media curator, which was led by uh, Trish and as well as Patrick. And I also applied for Nan, Nan Junction Travel Award. Uh, sadly, we don't have her anymore, but uh, that award is really special uh, for me. Uh, in my wildest dreams, I had not even thought that I would get both. So, and because I didn't, didn't have any confidence during uh, that time, but when I chatted with Trish during the conference, she told me like how strong my application was and appreciated my work. And that conversation just sparked a lot of confidence in me, and it and it, I carry that today as well. And she became a good mentor for me, and she is still a mentor for me. Uh, and since then, I've been always working with Trish, uh, work as volunteer with the coalition, and uh, now I'm, I think I'm formally leading coalition digital media and outreach. So this is a great opportunity for me. And as an international scholar, um, I found uh, coalition to be very uh, welcoming. And uh, that's why I kind of applied to the position. And it's always so much uh, fun to be engaged with Trish and develop new ideas and work with the collections, digital and outreach media stuff. So that's, that's my story. Excellent. So let's talk a little bit about that. Trish, what was, you, what is you, your, your outgoing digital outreach coordinator? So yeah, I, we all, we always like mix up the words. It's that's, that works. <laughs> We got it. I get it wrong all the time. <laughs> okay. Um, so tell talk a little bit about uh, the role, like, you know, you can approach this day-to-day -day activities, groundwork, stuff like that, larger picture stuff, uh, things that you hope to accomplish, uh, things that, uh, you, that you think are headed in the right direction. And then we'll kind of lead into a conversation with Sweta about some things that she hopes to extend and change or I don't want to say change in like a negative way, but extend and change based on the work that you've done. 
Great. When I started, Jen Fishman had already led the way by creating the Facebook account and Facebook presence that was already expanding in some ways and had created the Twitter account that wasn't in, in use very much. Um, so on a day-to-day -day basis, it is a collaborative effort. Sweda pitches in on Twitter, a number of other people pitch in on Twitter, um, a number of other people pitch in at conferences. Jen Fishman is still kind of the, the queen of our Facebook page, and I add a lot of content there too. So a lot of it on a day-to-day -day basis is this kind of regular flow of content production, which we use to focus, we focus that content production on amplifying feminist scholars in the field, as well as sharing uh, articles and resources and opportunities that I think are important for contemporary feminist scholars to be aware about. So that's kind of a day-to-day -day part. It's sort of an interesting, some of the big picture and bigger projects have been things like Okay, so on a day-to-day -day basis, my work has a lot to do with coordinating volunteers, recruiting volunteers, um, um, and a broader team of both grad students as well as junior faculty and senior faculty from kind of across the range of states in their careers to contribute to um, our social media accounts. This also includes working on posts uh, and announcements on our website and our blog, and also sharing news from the coalition. So that's on a day-to-day -day basis, that's sort of what the workflow is. But it's been interesting, some of the bigger picture things about the job that have kind of arisen as, as both like challenges and opportunities is to really pause and seriously consider what our goals are, what are our best practices in terms of a social media plan. So we've outlined that and I've worked with um, the advisory board and the executive board to create that kind of big picture vision of what we're doing here, what our best practices are, what we're not going to do. I think the WPA listserv highlighted that there's a need to have a moderation policy in place. And, and so we, we had not previously had a moderation policy and now we do. And so that is something that we've had to develop. Um, so it's been really interesting the big picture projects have been actually really intellectual collaborative projects of thinking about what purpose does social media have for a professional organization of feminist scholars. So that's been a part of the job that's been really, I think for me, rewarding. Um, and and the, we write all of those things as kind of like a best practices for what we are now, and then actually come back to them every six months to kind of just reevaluate some of those practices, revise them, because the best practices are always changing depending on the needs of the community, as well as um, changes in the technology or the use of social media. Um, so that's some of the things, the big picture. I think one of the biggest challenges for me in this role is that the social media does sort of look and appear uh, when I tweet as I'm tweeting for the coalition. And, and that puts me sort of in this position between our membership and our followers on social media and our advisory board and executive board who are often not on social media. So a big uh, tricky, but also nuanced and complex part of my um, work has been negotiating that in-between space 
between everybody on, on social media and our board and advisory board. And they, they just work on different time schedules and just kind of making sure that there's communication in between the communities that are on social media and the kind of advisory board and executive board so that or executive officers. So I think that that's been one of the more it's a part of the role that I've, I've worked to negotiate and, and navigate, but it's been something I, it's been a, a significant challenge. And so that was part of the role that I, that I find really intellectually as well as kind of like as a professional, really challenging, but also super, super rewarding and, and also a pretty high impact way that I can contribute to the coalition. Moving forward, oh my gosh, I just hope I know Sweat is going to do a fantastic job, and she's a committed mentor. She's been committed mentor as a graduate student. She's been a committed community organizer in her research and her life, and as just a community member and a professional. So I just know that she's going to use this role, and I hope that she continues to just continue to use this role to use social media to be able to continue to kind of like lift up and mentor, especially junior faculty and graduate students, which I know is, is one of her goals and also one of her, what she's really good at and what I am excited to see what, what she does next. I'm excited to hear from Sweta about what her plans are as she moves into this role. Thank you so much. Sorry, I cut off a little bit because my internet is a little unstable. So I just got to hear the last part of Trish. Uh, thank you so much, Trish, for so many good words for me. I think it's, uh, I really want to carry forward uh, the work that I have been working as a volunteer in under the, in working with Trish, I have been really, I think, well mentored for um, for this position. When I applied for this position officially, my goals uh, specifically, as my role specifically demands outreach and work with digital media, and some things I had thought about was representing and again amplifying the voices of scholars of color, women of color, and other feminist scholars in the digital space. And um, I like, uh, since my research is also on social media and how people network and collaborate, so I think I really want to bring that, that activity of networking, collaborating, and and as well as creating space for such activities digitally by collection. And also, like, since... uh, a lot of rhetoric and writing communities, uh, discussions, and a lot of, uh, you know, like discussions and a lot of small actions, as well as like discourse sometimes happen online, whether it is like serious about academic stuff, uh, publications, or just like scholars sharing their uh, struggles and other, other stuff online. So I think as representing collection, I would like to be involved in those participatory actions of the community, Redcom community, by understanding them, dialoguing with them, and also working together with them to create like a safer uh, space where underrepresented folks in especially minority folks could have their voice. So I think that's my major goal. And also if you see the goal of the collection is the advancement of feminist research and pedagogy across histories, locals, identities, and as well as education and mentoring of feminist faculty and graduate students, um, especially in scholarship or research methods and practices. So I think uh, my goal is to 
continue working digitally to reach these goals and mission of the coalition and really strive to represent work of scholars of color in various spaces. I haven't started already working as Trish, uh, but I listening to her, I think I would really want to continue doing that. And I know even though a lot of folks are online, I understand having my having worked with Nexion, I understand some of some folks are not online and uh, would not prefer to be on Twitter or Facebook. I would like to reach out to them as well and really work, I think working together and working collaboratively as a representative of coalition is my goal. Yeah, and then also creating a very inclusive mentoring space for graduate students as well as junior faculty because that's, um, as a graduate student, I think I received a lot of mentoring from the coalition and it has in many ways uh, boosted my confidence, uh, helped me establish my identity as a scholar in the field. Not that maybe growing scholar, not a scholar yet, but, uh, and I, I think like um, being engaged with question uh, also helped me represent myself in many ways that I haven't uh, had chance to in the bigger other organizations uh, that I'm part of. So in this space, as a graduate student, I've been involved in volunteering in the digital media, especially Twitter. Uh, I have been involved in the conference outreach. I have been involved as a mentee in working with a mentor, a feminist mentor to, to work in a publication. So that's also another thing. And also like to be in the awards committee and to have my voice and say like, you need to represent international scholars and stuff like that. So I think it question uh, has given me a space to grow as a graduate student. And I believe it will also provide me space to grow as a faculty. So I really want to put this forward and kind of work to involve more graduate students uh, and also create a space for mentoring for graduate students and uh, junior faculties. I know I need to learn a lot because I, this would be kind of like this role I think would be my own exploration as well as a uh, as a representative of coalition because I think there there is a lot of learning opportunity for me as a person and as a scholar in this space. So I'm really looking forward to do that. I can build on to that. Whether you said that this is this role is an exploration for you. And that's mm -hmm. also what it was for me. And I think that what I was able to bring to it was a kind of curiosity and a willingness to kind of try new things and collaborate and learn from others. I think that's also why I'm really excited about Shweta taking this role because she's going to explore different things than I did. And I think that that, that transition to your, to see where your exploration brings you because of your scholarly expertise and because of your mentoring expertise is kind of why I'm really excited to see what you do next. Thank you. I'm also really excited about that because, but I'm, I also want to be honest because I have, I feel like I always collaborate with you and have you as a mentor, but I'm really, you know, a little bit scared to leave this position on my own. I know I will have you always 
and I'll have other mentors as well, but I'm a little scared as well. Did you feel that way when you started? Oh, the first time I tweeted from the coalition Twitter account, I was actually terrified because there, there are a lot of followers and you're tweeting and it feels like you're tweeting for the coalition and our board has such outstanding scholars. It felt, I felt too, I felt humbled and intimidated to, to tweet on behalf of the coalition and certainly to post on Facebook. The first time that I emailed the board, you know, because you're just emailing Andrea, you know, directly, right? And, or, you know, it just uh, such renowned scholars uh, who I've read my entire academic career. So emailing them directly to ask them questions or to update them on something was for me really intimidating. And certainly tweeting out on behalf of the coalition for me was very intimidating. So that all really scared me, but now I do it all the time. And like I post photos of my cat on there. So I think I was certainly afraid and intimidated at first, but I definitely took to it like a, like a fish to water. And I, I, I probably should be on Twitter and Facebook a little less because sometimes I get a little sassy on there um, on behalf of the coalition, uh, which I'm fine with as well. But that's just to say I was definitely scared and intimidated and I definitely found my own voice and confidence in that space. Uh, and I have, I have faith that you'll do the same. Thank you. I hope to do that. <laughs> Can I ask you a question that makes me sound like a boomer? <laughs> sure. <laughs> so Instagram, right? <laughs> or, or other forms of social media beyond Facebook and Twitter. I have, my exploration has not taken me there. And anybody who knows me on social media knows that I am, I'm a fan of Instagram, um, but mostly for cat photos. So I haven't figured out how to use you know, I haven't even been on TikTok. I, I, I should have a student tell me what TikTok is. I don't know. And Instagram, I know what it is, but I haven't imagined how to use it in a professional setting. So I think if we are asking this question of like where we think social media, this role for social media can go for the coalition, I think somebody who has um, a willingness to take on those projects and see what you can do as a, for a professional organization of feminists on Instagram or TikTok or whatever these other platforms are, I think that that would be interesting and fun. But I think I just, I, I'm not even that old. I feel like I'm too old to, to go into those spaces <laughs> as a professional. I, I don't know how to do it. Well, in class, I think I've used Instagram for, uh, in my past job in Nepal, I've used Instagram uh, and also blogging and other platforms. And I think for uh, the conference, so me and uh, Jennifer, Jennifer, she was at Ohio State. I think we both Instagrammed a lot uh, during the conference, like taking up information from the uh, from the conference and putting a picture for the panel and describing those panels. So I think uh, there is a possibility since Instagram is a really uh, there are a lot of people on Instagram. So I think it would be really need to establish uh, coalition's identity on Instagram as you know, like have very low-key kind of audience-driven posts and I think it will also help during conferences so I'm, I'm, I would like to do that uh, for TikTok 
I know my friends use it a lot, but uh, I don't use TikTok. I used to use Snapchat, but I don't do that anymore. And also I, I know some organizations use Snapchat, but I have not. We can explore TikTok as well and have like during the conference, have senior scholars say something funny and break that, you know, not break, I think. It would be nice to use, explore other digital uh, media to expand collections mission, I think. Yeah, I don't, I was like, I love the idea. It sounds fun. I don't know. I don't know what to post other than cat photos and sunsets. <laughs> Walks on the beach. <laughs> but I see the folks who run D Black do a fantastic mm-hmm. job at it. So I know it can be done. I feel like it's some visioning in the future would be great. One of the things I've noticed from the coalition, just exploring your website and getting to know more about your organization through this collaboration, is that. The, one of the ways that you all support graduate students and scholars working in the field is through awards and grants and scholarship. Do you think we could spend a moment talking a, a little bit about some of those opportunities? Yeah, I would love to talk about the grants. One of the big priorities for me in this role is making sure that our members and our followers know that there are a lot of opportunities for grants, research grants, and awards through the coalition. We have um, awards for best article, and that is specifically for PATHO, our journal. Um, We have an outstanding book award, and that is actually going to be announced um, either this week or next. Um, I'm working on that blog post right now, so I'm not going to have any spoilers right now. But the book award is every other year as well. We have a lot of graduate student travel awards, and that's to support graduate students going to Feminism and Rhetorics Conference. Um, The number that we give is dependent on how many donations we have, as well as a number of other factors. Uh, We try to support as many different graduate students as possible. One of the awards that's most kind of dear to my heart is the mentoring award. That's dear to me because uh, mentoring is at the heart of what the coalition does. And it's really a a serious reason why we exist as an organization. But it's also some of the most invisible labor that we do in our jobs. And so this award really celebrates that work. For me, I was on the award committee, the review committee, uh, not this most recent one, but the year before. And I honestly read so many dozens and dozens of letters into support of some of the most important scholars in our field. And what I saw in those letters was the importance of mentoring, but also how seriously the scholars take feminist mentoring. Uh, Some of the letters just made me cry because they were so touching and they made me really take the work of a feminist mentor um, so much, so, so seriously. And so I really appreciate that award. We also have a dissertation award and we have research grants and that's for every other year. The research grants can go for anybody at any kind of point in their career. It does tend to go to graduate students who might need that extra support, but that's by no means the only people who get the award. And it really supports any any kind of research that is relevant to feminism that could use some actual, uh, some additional support. And those awards are also going to be announced in the next couple of weeks. And then there's a new award, which Sweater, you were instrumental in on the committee that created that award. So do you want to talk about that? So the committee that I was in was for Shirley Logan. The award 
that uh, the awards committee that I was in was the Shirley Wilson Logan Diversity Scholarship Award. And um, at first I didn't know how to, you know, because there were there are so many uh, big scholars who were, who were in the committee. So as a graduate student, I was, I was very nervous about being in the committee, but they were very, like you said, they were very, well, like I said before, they were very welcoming um, as well as welcoming to my thoughts about the award. So the awards committee uh, that I was in was Shirley Wilson Logan Diversity Scholarship Award. And uh, let me tell you uh, one thing that it took us, uh, I don't know, like four months to uh, create this award because we were continually dialoguing with each other via and talking about what kind of, how do we envision this award, what kind of um, scholars that we want to give out this award to, what could be the criteria of the awards, what, are, what could be the requirements of the application. So all these things, there were so many, I didn't realize that there were so many, you know, uh, little works, little language issues in a lot of different things that goes into creating an award. And I believe we were like around more than five uh, or six scholars here. And I think I was only the graduate student, but I'm not sure. So this, uh, the purpose of this scholarship or award was obviously to encourage feminist scholarship, uh, particularly in the historical nature. So one thing that I really voiced for in, uh, in I'm really, I think I'm really proud that I voiced was for uh, having international scholars as, as a requirement or, you know, like how do we define underrepresented uh, group was one of the biggest challenging question. And I really voiced for international scholars because me being an international scholar, sometimes I feel like I know I'm underrepresented group, but I'm if there is no direct mention of international scholars, there, I, I don't feel like very comfortable about which category do I fall to, you know, like I don't like the word category, but like, uh, can I apply to this award or not? Is this meant for me or not? So it's kind of a lot of a question myself. So thinking about my own activity, um, I really wish that there should be uh, <clears throat> international scholars in the award list. So I think this award really, um, the requirements of this application are really basic. They have to be the, the graduate students have to be the first time presenter and also have to be accepted to the conference. And this is, I think, really uh, important for under, it is really important for us to voice international, uh, not international, but underrepresented scholars uh, because I think I'm losing my thoughts. I'm saying, gonna say, this again. So I think it is uh, the words that collection uh, provides for graduate student is really important for a lot of graduate students and underrepresented scholars because that helps them to come to the conference, represent their work. And I think the Diversity Scholarship Award is on top of all the awards that collection provides. I think this award is really important for uh, people, underrepresented 
uh, scholars like myself. So I think having been part of this award was uh, awards committee was pretty important for me. And I'm really glad that I was able to participate because I understood the, as a, as a scholar, as a graduate student, I think I understood what goes in the background of creating an award and whom are we thinking about audiences of this award or whom are we thinking about the app, thinking about the applicants, uh, what this award should do and, you know, all the stuff. So, and uh, yeah, I think that's it. What else do you want folks to know about the work that the coalition does? Picking up here, what I hope folks know that the coalition does, um, picking up on what Sweda said about her experience, working on the awards committee is I think it's really important to remember that or that, that folks know that our advisory board and executive officers are brilliant, committed feminists and mentors. And the process that you described, Sweta, of, of really like thinking very carefully about every word choice and every criteria and really talking and questioning and interrogating what the possible implications of those word choices could be to different people is something that I think that they do, that the board, the, the executive officers and the advisory board does about, about everything that the coalition does. And I think that that deliberateness, that intentionality, and that care that they take to what they do is it's something that it is possible to show visibly when because anybody's welcome to come to our public meetings, but it's also it's really hard to make that kind of deliberation and dialogue uh, collaboration um, visible to uh, our to a broad audience. Um, but I think it's one of the things that has been most beneficial to me as a professional because I've watched how these senior scholars work with their care, dialogue, collaboration, and I've learned how to integrate that into my own work as a professional and as a mentor. Um, it's a slow process and it's a, it, it takes a lot of care and care, time and intention that I've learned so much from kind of watching that process unfold, um, whether it's in awards meetings or board meetings or thinking about um, how we use uh, money that we fundraise or even how we fundraise. Um, so watching that process unfold, I've learned a lot um, and also learned to really just appreciate uh, the board and what they do. I want people to know that collection is a very welcoming space for both graduate students uh, and junior faculties as well as non-tenure track faculty members. And one thing I really, uh, since I have been engaged with the coalition voluntarily, I didn't expect a lot of things uh, from the coalition, but time and again, like I remember uh, Dr. Gorban's uh, letter of recognition to me that just came in my email or one day thanking me for the works I do and nearly cried that day because I felt like, okay, I'm just doing this work and, you know, but I found that flesh and recognizes the work I do voluntarily. So I really felt really good about it uh, because yeah, it was just, I mean, my, I don't think I spend a lot of time volunteering, but I didn't recognize, uh, 
or understand that my small gesture towards questions work uh, is being recognized, you know, that would make me really happy. And I think that goes on in the question and has been going on in the question for a long time. So I think uh, I really want people to understand that the mission of question is to really boost forward the feminist scholarship mentoring and uh, and also like feminist scholarship not only within the US but also outside the US. Uh, I think that's something that I really want to you know put forward because and also the other thing is uh, engaging with the community and I think question is very welcoming and um, I mean in comparison with other organizations I think there is a space, there are multiple opportunities within the collection that as a graduate student, we can be involved in. We can, you know, and I think our digital space is similarly welcoming. For example, we didn't talk about a red kindness that Trish had um, initiated a couple of months ago. And I think it really, uh, it's just a head check. And we discussed quite a bit and then we just started that as a, a kindness movement and it was uh Trish who started that but it really I think brought the community together on Twitter just by sharing uh very low-key and uh low-key stuff about ourselves and how do we be kind to ourselves and stuff like that. So I think as uh, a new outreach director of outreach and digital media I would really want to push those uh, work forward. And I really want uh, other graduate students as well as faculty to know that this space is, we are always welcoming ideas and we are always welcoming collaboration and we always are, are open to, you know, suggestions and ideas. And as well as uh, we want to amplify voices of scholars and irrespective of, you know, their, uh, irrespective of their nationality and irrespective of their identity and we voice we voice for everyone therese also sent me therese last year therese is the current president of the coalition I, um her term is about to be over last year she spent i don't know how much time writing really each and every volunteer individual personal very careful thank you letters um recognizing the work that we do and that was for me such a touching letter. I am also like Sweta, like I nearly cried when I got it just to see my work kind of made visible, but also my intellectual and emotional labor kind of uh, recognized for what it was. And that was a very special moment for me. And it's also one of like the many different things that I think counts as mentoring that we care a lot about in the coalition. Thank you both so much for chatting with me today. Um, this has been excellent. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thank you. Have a good us. day. Would you like to join Charles on the podcast? The Big Rhetorical Podcast 
Emerging Scholar Series is a unique series of podcast episodes specifically designed to highlight the life and career work of graduate students and other academics who enjoy discussing the development of their scholarship, their pedagogy, and their service to the fields and disciplines of rhetoric, writing studies, and technical communication. The Big Rhetorical Podcast Emerging Scholar Series offers participants the opportunity to contribute to ongoing conversations within our disciplines and beyond. This record of conversations eventually will be a vast catalog of dialogues, a digital archive with the potential to impact the knowledge-making in rhetoric, writing studies, and technical communication, as well as adjacent fields. Moreover, our Emerging Scholar series serves as a glimpse into the variety of positionalities and personalities currently working in and defining these areas, as well as a way to track specific disciplinary themes as they manifest throughout time. For scholars and practitioners, the Big Rhetorical Podcast Emerging Scholar Series offers the opportunity to gauge the future of rhetoric, writing studies, and technical communication by learning more about the research of graduate students and less seasoned scholars. The Big Rhetorical Podcast core ideals are similar to the community-based writing project, with an emphasis on inclusivity in localizing knowledge and strengthening relationships among peers. As we embark upon the newest season of the Big Rhetorical Podcast, please feel free to check out older episodes and our newest episodes wherever you get podcasts, including iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Anchor.fm. If you would like to be featured on an episode of the Big Rhetorical Podcast Emerging Scholar Series, or if you have any questions about the Big Rhetorical Podcast, please submit a form at our website, www.thebigrhetoricalpodcast.weebly.com. You can also find the Big Rhetorical Podcast on Twitter at the Big Ret. Follow the podcast on Facebook. Email us at thebigrhetorical at gmail.com. We hope to hear from you soon. Therese Graben is the outgoing president of the coalition, and Wendy Scherer is the incoming president. Wendy previously served as vice president. I'm Wendy Scherer. I'm a professor in the English department at East Carolina University in Greenville, North Carolina. I'm currently the vice president of the organization, um, and I will be moving into the president role, uh, all things, uh, if all things go smoothly, um, on the 15th of April. Okay. Tax day. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know. <laughs> and, um, Therese, how about you? Who are you, if applicable? What is your institutional organizational affiliation, your title, and your role with the organization with which you're being interviewed? I am Therese Graven, and I'm Associate Professor of English at Florida State University and also affiliate faculty uh, in the MA in Digital Humanities program. We are in Tallahassee, Florida, state capital. Legislature is in session for a few more days still. 
And currently I'm president of the coalition and April 15th, I will be transitioning uh, into my role as immediate past president. Therese, when did you become president of the coalition? 2018. 2018. So that's for a two-year term? Two-year term. What were some of the missions and goals that you had when you uh, took on the new role as president? I, I set some goals and visions and mission uh, for the first year. And then the second year of the organization has just been a very different year. The organization's dynamic. It's growing. It's changing. The needs of the members change. Our context changes. Our institutions change. So I do feel as if that first set of goals hasn't, hasn't been, it hasn't fully accounted for everything we've done this year, but I will share it anyway. When I stepped into the presidency, I uh, became the coalition's 14th president. And so there are essentially 13 pairs of shoes to fill. The organization had undergone a growth spurt and not only in terms of our membership, but also in terms of our activity level, in terms of the number of awards we knew we wanted to confer. I think though, and Wendy can speak to this as well, because she's been involved with the organization, we also knew that we needed to become more nuanced in the ways that we diversified, not only our membership, but also our activities and our commitments. Um, and I think that's been an effort that a number of presidents have contributed to. I don't think it's the case that in any one two-year term, something completely brand new emerges out of nowhere and then it's completely fulfilled. I think there is a lot of shared agendas and I think each president uh, to some extent can set a new agenda but also inherits agendas. So I think I came in at a really exciting time, a very busy time. I had an eight-part vision <laughs> for the presidency. One was that as an organization, we could give more outwardly and more charitably, not only to people within our ranks, but also to other organizations or smaller affiliates, since, since we had been a very small affiliate before we grew. I knew that I wanted to formalize for the long term some of the ideas that we had been implementing over the short term. Um, wanted to find ways to enable our advisory board members to be able to participate even if they couldn't physically attend conferences. We've been in a period of conference fatigue and it's been sometimes just very difficult financially and physically to get to conferences. We knew we were at a moment where we had to develop guidelines or documentation to better assist advisory board members to take on a number of projects and also to be able to supervise volunteers in a number of projects because we have a, a great and energetic volunteer base. And we needed just some documentation in place to help us with that. I wanted to ensure that our public meetings and everything that we did um, exuded a space where maybe the older, more senior members could, uh, could still feel like it's their organization, as well as newer, younger members could feel like it's a, a place where they could come and grow. Um, that we would conduct all of our discussions with an ethic of transparency that we'd let differences occur among ourselves um, and that um, we could protect the integrity, self-worth and value of our members and of the organization. So as I look back on that now, I'm like, oh, that was a laundry list of things that seemed very technical and banal. And it seemed to work and it fit uh, in the first year. And then in the second year, um, it just, it really was no longer the point of focus. I think in the second year, we began to focus quite a lot on uh, our public facing activities and being able to be the kind of organization that uh, a changing membership needs. I think that, uh, I, I won't have an, how many parts did you say it was? Eight. Eleven? Eight. 
sorry. It was so ridiculous. <laughs> um, mine is, my ideas moving forward are, are, I guess, slightly less ambitious. But I think that's because of the things that happened this, this year that Therese was alluding to, to some of the changes and challenges that the organization, I think, has had over the past year in particular. And I think for me, one of the things I really want to do and I hoped to focus on is kind of reinvigorating the appeal of the organization to graduate students and junior faculty. I think we still have a huge appeal to those groups of people. I really do. But the those groups are also fortunately changing and diversifying in ways that I think we as an organization need to to figure out how best to serve. And, and it, this is also some of the things that, that Therese was alluding to in her answer. So for me, I think figuring out how to do that, given that as a field, we don't have uh, by any means an unlimited supply of people of color who can serve as mentors. I mean, the ones, the people we do have are wonderful and great, but they're also taxed and tired and always being asked to do things. So it's a matter of trying to figure out how do we provide the kind of mentoring that will help the diversifying field, you know, when those of us who entered the field when it wasn't as diverse are the ones um, kind of with the, the experience to mentor uh, in certain ways. So I haven't totally figured out how that would work, but I think one of the main things that we we will need to do is to look outside of just the organization to get folks who can be better mentors than I think some of the long-term members of the coalition can be just because we aren't, you know, we're me, I'm, you know, middle-aged white woman, you know, and I, I have limited experiences and, and li limited uh, views and understandings. And so, and I think that that's true of a number of the kind of longtime members of the, of the coalition. So I'm trying to figure out how do we really make, make the organization more welcoming and a more of a mentoring space, given how much we've diversified, uh, particularly in terms of graduate students and, and um, you know, newer uh, tenure stream and non-tenure track as well faculty. What are some of the exigencies, whether in the discipline, in the, or in the field, I suppose the discipline really, what are some of the exigencies uh, prompting this uh, forward facing, I don't want to say rebranding, that might be too much, but in a way, I think perhaps that's kind of what you're doing, what the, the work, what you're working towards, or at least bringing in new voices uh, to develop diversify your your brand I wonder so what are some of the exigencies either in the discipline or beyond cultural uh, cultural exigencies exigencies etc that are that are prompting this um, reevaluation I can offer some and then Wendy you know will, will offer some as well I, I think interestingly enough I think it depends on whom you ask because um, to a certain extent, the organization was created to be dynamic 
And to a certain extent, some of the things that we're only now finally writing into policy are in fact activities we've been conducting. Um, so some of what's going on is a very visible, transparent formalizing of things that have been our practices, we just never thought to use them to brand us. I, I guess we didn't think there was the need. Um, so that's part of it. Part of it is a number of things that past leaders have wanted to do, and it's just taken several presidential terms to bring them to fruition. Things take time. Part of it is um, a very explicit turning of our convention discourse um, to really to really thinking about ideas of uh, language ideology being being more nuanced in terms of how we think about diversity, you know, diversity not only in terms of color and race, but diversity in terms of life experience, neurological diversity, career migration, career instability. Um, so I, I mean, I, f I feel like as an organization, we, we occupy this interesting space because we are both emerging always emerging from you know this field but we also ourselves are a little intellectual home and so we our, our response time and response mechanisms may be different um so i think i'm doing a terrible job of articulating and saying some things have actually just been emerging all along um and some are are very urgent moments that we we recognize in the needs of our membership or in social media conversations and we know we need to make something more transparent or put something into place. Excellent, excellent. Um, Wendy, what made you want to become or move into the presidency of the coalition? Um, I joined the coalition um, when I was a graduate student, um, a doctoral <clears throat> student working with um, Cheryl Glenn, who is one of the founding members of the coalition. And um, when I went to the first coalition gathering, which was at a C's, and I don't honestly remember what year that was, <laughs> but it was a while ago. Um, and then I also went to my first FEMRETS back in the late 90s. I, I just immediately sort of felt welcome and at home. And so much of that was because I was able to sit down and have a a conversation and get feedback and advice and learn from people whose you know work I'd been reading in graduate seminars and um, and just that kind of accessibility uh, with other scholars that I admired sort of got me hooked on the coalition um, and that's also why that experience is why I would love to focus on building that piece. Uh, and, and building the organization's mentoring capabilities because it was so important for me personally to have that experience. Mm -hmm. um, and really those are the things that I think led me to, to get involved with the actual executive, um, executive board. And then of course there was peer pressure to... <laughs> to <laughs> No, um, I, I love the the executive board now. It's just a great group of of uh, great group of, of scholars and human beings. So the opportunity to, to work with them and influence the direction of the organization, I think you know, that was really really appealing to me. So you've had a, at least a twenty year relationship with the coalition in different form and. Yeah, in different forms, I guess. Yeah. Um, whether that's as a graduate student or as a coalition member, 
or um, now uh, serving on the executive board and now under the presidency. What about you, Therese? Uh, how long have you been associated with the coalition and what prompted your uh, wanting to be involved? And, and that can go, again, just from a graduate student on up in, in different levels. Absolutely. And after I answer that, though, I want to make sure Wendy has an opportunity to answer the question you posed to me, Charles, about the exigencies. Okay, um, great. And I thought of even more exigencies, but I want to make okay. sure she gets her turn. Yes. Yeah, so um, I, my first um, my first exposure to the coalition was at a feminisms and rhetorics conference as a graduate student, and it was interesting uh, because I I I don't know viscerally or affectively how I knew this. It's just um, you go and you know immediately it's in your intellectual home. Something about the, the cogency in the program, the coherence among the panels, the atmosphere, the attitude, the accessibility in terms of being able to talk to the scholars whom you've been reading and citing, the quality of conversations, the quality of papers, the quality of programming. It was just a different world. And um, so that uh, I really didn't look back. Um, at some point, I think it might have been in 2010, maybe, maybe the coalition had done this earlier, but at some point, the coalition decided to actually uh, grow its advisory board, and it began to put out calls for nominations for advisory board members. And that, in my memory, signals the beginning of when the advisory board became a, a more open uh, governance board. And so I uh, uh, self-nominated, or maybe someone nominated me to be on the advisory board. And I served on the advisory board for two terms uh, before then moving onto the executive board. And I served as a secretary and quasi-archivist for two terms, and then vice president, uh, now president, and then we'll move into immediate past president. The thing about the presidency role is it's really a six-year commitment. You, when you commit to be vice president, you are committing, in fact, to be considered for incoming president, and then you're committing to serving two years as past president. So it's a, it's a significant commitment for anyone um, who agrees to it. Yeah, um, and uh, we we are a hardworking board. Um, what are some of the things going on in our in our in our current moment, then, Wendy, that are kind of prompting us to prompting the coalition? I'm sorry to to rethink about the ways they approach things like mentoring and branding, for lack of a better word. Well, I think part of it is the the expansion of the field. I mean, it's growing both numerically and growing in terms of the variety and, and diversity of people who are involved in it. And, you know, that is definitely a, a main factor in, I think, why we're at the moment where we're trying to figure out how to, I guess, rebrand or, or alter or um, better our, our approaches to mentoring. So certainly the changing demographics of the field, both rhetoric and composition at large, but I think particularly within the folks who study feminisms and, and rhetorics and feminism and, and history of rhetoric and composition, I think that area of scholarship has um, really blossomed uh, and in wonderful ways. So, I mean, it's, uh, it's been challenging, but it's a great challenge, you know, so I'm I'm looking forward to, you know, I know it won't be easy, but I'm looking forward to, to doing, you know, trying to do a little more in those, in those areas. Um, another exigence really, I think, is social media 
and the ease ease of production and ease of consumption yeah. of different viewpoints, which obviously, as we know, those that can have a negative exactly. impact, but it also <laughs> means that you know there's there's a lot more call to be uh, responsive, and and so that is the the pressure to be responsive and to be responsive relatively quickly, I think is, has made a huge difference. And social media directly plays into that. Really like, Wendy, your selection of, I, I like your use of the term responsive. You're absolutely right. And I think we all, we all commiserate often that in fact, we've been doing a year of responding. And in fact, we've probably been doing two years of responding. And this is not a bad thing. It's just such an indication of who we are as an organization. There's tremendous responsibility in being us. Um, we are a feminist group. We're committed to feminist principles. Those are dynamic and changing and multiple. Um, we are a conglomeration of many we's, not a singularity. And that takes time and, um, uh, and care. And, and it's sometimes hard to perform all ethics of care in ways that are meaningful to everybody who needs to see them performed. We're a small organization in terms of the, the core, yet we do a lot. We kind of keep up to pace with the larger organizations in terms of all the programming we offer, whether it's online mentoring, manuscript mentoring, conference mentoring, uh, and, and we've always been committed to really empowering the membership to be who they are as well. And for that reason, we, we only sort of loosely moderate our social media channels. We attend to them, but we've allowed them to grow. But, and it does sometimes create a unique discursive space because you know, you've got the organization trying to move in a particular direction and be very transparent. Um, and, uh, and then conversations moving in different ways in social media channels. So it's, it's been challenging, and I know we're not the only organization operating out of that challenge, but it's also one of the things I think is so exciting. And it challenges us then to be more nuanced in everything, you know, to be more nuanced in how we reach out to graduate students and involve them, and in how we serve junior faculty and serve each other. When I was exploring your website, doing some research before our chat, the tab that stuck out to me and I was like, this is what I want to know more about were, was the mentoring tab and the opportunities for collaboration and meetups at conferences. Perhaps we might hear from both of you some, um, some thoughts on what those are, like logistics, groundwork, planning, things like that, who's involved. But also, what are, what are some ways that we might see the coalition taking a different approach to mentoring if you're there and ready to talk about that based on some of the responsiveness over the last couple of years? It's a tough okay. question. And I'm staring at the mentoring tab right now, which is why okay. you see me diverting my gaze. <laughs> I'm just calling it up too. Well, again, I'll, I'll offer a few things, but Wendy does actually have five more years with the organization than I do. So, so her perspective is just in, like incredibly valuable, if not more valuable than mine. Maybe I'll start by saying mentoring is something that no one person can take credit for. I think if you even go back into any text we have circulated about our history, that was the core value, the principal core value. And what I find so exciting is we've been finding different ways to do it, different spaces and venues for it. So perhaps our earliest formal mentoring occurs at our annual pre-seas Wednesday night event. 
um, and that consists of an hour of mentoring tables that are led by scholars and often co-led by senior and junior scholars or, or faculty and graduate students on a number of topics. Ha however, we also had built mentoring into the Feminisms and Rhetorics Conference, um, usually a one or two hour block of manuscript mentoring. Patho, the, the journal that's associated with the organization, has a very intricate now uh, manuscript mentoring process to ensure that materials don't get too quickly rejected or don't uh, linger in the pipeline without getting you know, the editorial help they need. And then last year, we were able to pilot an online manuscript mentoring program, which functions differently from the other programs in that the idea of the program was to pair uh, junior and senior scholars or scholars and graduate students to be able to work on a defined publication goal that would take a year. So um, whether that was just meeting together to demystify the publishing process or to work towards um, uh, completing a chapter of the dissertation and uh, writing it up as an article or, you know, working towards a book perspectives. And um, I, I know that I want to be able to do more with that program. We really only ran a pilot year and then got so busy we didn't have a chance to uh, do more with that. But th that I saw that as, as different in the sense that we were just trying to build a fairly short, long-term relationship. Or maybe I should say a longer, short-term relationship. This is definitely a program we put into place for students who could do this with the blessing of their major professor and yeah. the mentors to be able to receive ancillary mentoring from from voices in the field and right. it's sometimes the case that students or even junior scholars are in programs where their peers and colleagues and mentors are overtaxed and um, that was a common refrain and uh, it was also a common refrain that people enjoyed the conference-based mentoring so much that we thought it would make sense to, to, to see if we could take that out of the conference space and design a more extensive experience with it but an experience that still had a concrete goal and a, and a timeline yeah wendy do you want to reflect or on this question sure um i i uh i'm hoping that although i don't think it's technically in the timeline we have uh, the uh, duties timeline that we have set up for officers um, i'm hoping that therese will be interested in maybe continuing with that online manuscript mentoring yeah. initiative because I think that that's really important um, and I'm hoping maybe now that she's once she's not uh, <laughs> carrying the the many responsibilities and, and um, uh, tasks of, of being president that might be something she'd uh, want to continue with and of course I will help her uh, for you that. Wendy yes Okay. No, yeah, I, I definitely I do think we should continue it. Yeah, so we'll, yeah, we'll keep I think, working I think that's, that's, um, that's really useful. I think for, for me, another, I'd like to try to, 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 I'd like to see the mentoring expand a little bit more beyond mentoring with uh, publication specifically. And we do have, I mean, those mentoring tables, they have typically included not just, you know, how to change your dissertation into a book manuscript or, you know, publication related things. They've also focused on things like work-life balance, activism, um, job, they've, market. They've job market things, uh, teaching, I think too, has been, a, been something that's come up at those tables. And I think it would be really valuable to see like maybe one or two, I'm, I'm going to, I'm trying to be realistic. Uh, one or two additional mentoring um, 
focuses or venues that that look at these other things that aren't publication and and part of my reason for wanting to do that is i i've always been a little concerned about how the field in general and i'm, I'm not singling out the coalition here necessarily but has limited i think in some ways participation in conversations by privileging scholarship or a notion of scholarship that looks at it as the sort of extended re kind of research intensive monograph uh, as the paywalls. Paywall, <laughs> yeah, I mean, <laughs> these kinds of things that while they're valuable, of course, research and monographs are valuable and I, I don't mean to say they're not, but I think that that's a, that has always been a limited notion of what scholarship is. And, and so I'd like to see the mentoring do two things. One is to kind of look at things other than what we traditionally call scholarship and also to kind of unsettle what scholar, what counts as scholarship and what scholarship looks like. Yeah. So um, one of the things that, I'm the outgoing associate editor of Patho. And I know this interview wasn't about that, but um, I just, I'm glad you're going there. <laughs> yes. Um, but to me, one of the things I really wanted to do um, as associate editor was to start a new section called Recoveries and Reconsiderations. Mm. And the whole idea behind that, that section was to provide a space where more people could enter a scholarly conversation with pieces that were shorter, that raised questions rather than, you know, a lengthy, extended, multi-source scholarly article. There are examples of scholarship that, in my mind, are, are doing the hard work of uh, complicating and extending and um, moving scholarship forward in that way. So in my hope there was to, you know, allow a broader range of people to contribute. So we have a lot, a lot of wonderful people at teaching, teaching heavy institutions. Um, and that's one of the key things I'm really interested in is trying to bring the, the scholars at those institutions you know, more into our conversations. And obviously that would also tie into mentoring that looks not just at a traditional publication, but mentoring in other other areas and other forms. Wendy, I'm so glad you mentioned that. And, you know, this is reminding me also that we've been trying to rethink our service model to kind of better accommodate the lived realities of the people who are our members, knowing that mm. um, we can't overburden or overload anyone and mm -hmm. um, so part of our thinking about how to work differently structurally and how to how to better involve volunteers and then how to mentor those volunteers so that they could work on their own independently is, has also been part and parcel of our like Wendy says realizing the the lived conditions of the people we're serving and wanting to make opportunities for them without uh, taxing them too much. So I've talked to a handful of coalition members now as I've, I've, I've done these um, interviews with you all. And I think two things that I'm noticing that you all don't know that other people are saying, <laughs> so, so I was going to share them with you. 
and then uh, it said that you hear them more organically than however I remix them for the podcast is that the work you're doing or have done and perhaps the work that you will do going forward, uh, preparing graduate students for Altac careers, that seems to be really great work. I don't know a lot about it, but just some of the things I've heard from people that have been around specifically Sarah Mosley, she talked a bit about that. And, and I think that maybe if you have something to say, either Wendy or Therese about the Alt-Act mentoring opportunities. So I have so many different ways to respond to that question. I'm actually the placement director here in the department at FSU and um, have have done placement for graduate students at two other campuses as well. And Altac need not only be outside the academy, the, there's such an active conversation that Altac could be alternative pathways within the academy that yeah. are deliberate decisions that people with advanced degrees know they're going to seek. And those are the kinds of decisions that aren't only made once you're on the market. They're the decisions you make very early on in your program as you think about, you know, shaping your course of study to prepare you for this. Um, and I'm incredibly thrilled, actually, to hear that people feel well-served <laughs> in that way. And I'll tell you, it's because I think that we haven't found a way to formalize that programming as much, mm -hmm. and those offerings as much. But I think in anything we do, and I think this came out so elegantly and clearly in Wendy's responses about exigencies and how she understands our mentoring mission, I think in anything we do, we try to, to do it very completely and very intimately and very personally. So we may have an agenda that's guiding the mentoring program writ large, but if it's very clear that what someone needs is not to be groomed for a particular job type, if, if it's clear that what they actually need is just insight and any number of other, um, you know, conversations or uh, experiences, we, we, we aim to, to, to give them those things. Um, so in other words, I think we aim to be really flexible um, and to be consistent and to build relationships and, and not to allow people to feel as if they're just being, you know, processed through very quickly and move through a program. I think we really aim to kind of build long-term relationships and take people seriously, even if they're critics and not happy with us. I think we aim to take them seriously. So I'm, it, it must be in the combination of those things and our action hours, which, which were um, uh, Jen Fishman, I think, who is our 12th president, um, had a very ambitious presidency in which she really wanted to add a new spin and a very fresh spin to our Wednesday evening events and really began um, reshaping them as open events and calls that got a lot of people involved, junior scholars, people at all stages of their career. And so we've, we've inherited the action hour and that ethic has stayed with us. And I think in the action hour works, we've been trying to make sure that we and our members are exposed to many other ways of being in the academy and thinking about the academy and thinking outside the academy. Um, so th those are the ways that I'm consciously aware uh, we've done this. And again, that was none of that was elegant. But all that is to say, I'm, I'm incredibly glad to hear that um, some of our members at least do feel well served. Um, the only thing I'm, I'm sort of thinking about here is, um, and this is something Therese and I have have been communicating about pretty recently, that is providing mentoring, in-person mentoring at, say, our, the CES events or at FEMRET um, that brings in people who are not in academic careers yeah. um, and, and involves them. I think that's fabulous and we really want to do that. Um, I think what we need to figure out is logistically 
how to make that happen. Yeah. Um, because, uh, you know, the, they don't come to our conferences <laughs> and they have a million other really pressing things going on because a lot of them are, you know, we're talking about, you know, people who, who are social activists and, and orga- organizers and um, non-government, non-government organizations and things like that. And so I, I guess I'm just, I, I'd love to expand in that. Um, I think it's going to be a challenge, but I, I think it would be really helpful for a lot of our members. Yeah. We are, we are trying to go there. Is there anything that we didn't talk about today that you want to mention about the coalition? It doesn't matter what it is. It can be broad, general, things you're proud of since you've been involved, um, your day-to-day work, anything at all that you want to just put out there that when, you, when, a, when a listener hears this, um, that you, you want to make sure that they hear from you, from the coalition. You know, I, I can't not be proud of us. It's been, a, it's been a busy year. It's been a difficult year, in part because there's nothing about our field that is stable and not unchanging. And um, to be an organization like ours, which is an organization with such high activity, and yet it's, it's not very large, and that means a tremendous amount of work falls on the shoulders of, of very few. And on top of that, there are people who tend to do what they do in a fulsome way, in an ethical way, and in a caring way, and are themselves deeply reflective. <laughs> And so I think it makes a normal workload seem like a monumental workload. And for that reason, I can't not be proud of the organization for everything that we've done. Every, every presidency, every term, every volunteer, every task force, every officer, in my mind, is notable. And notable well beyond, I think, actuality. They're notable well beyond. I know they don't get enough institutional reward. I know their institutional colleagues and their family members probably don't appreciate the the gravity and the magnitude of what they do. And I think probably none of us who works hard always sees the effect. And we don't know how many people we reach and we don't know how deep that impact is. But I somehow believe the effects are wide reaching and the impacts are deep. And when I think about how much gets done and how and how busy and already overcommitted and the people are who are doing it. I, I can't, I can't not be proud of the organization, even as I'm very aware that we are an organization that probably doesn't do enough or, or it's quite easy to perceive us as an organization that doesn't do enough because we operate under a very general moniker and it's, it's hard to be everything to everyone, but in, in, in dealing with the expectations and the conflicts, I get even more proud of the organization because it's still here and it, (laughs) And um, I, I value sometimes dissensus, and I, I value that we have agreed to be a space where that dissensus can occur, even as we continue to articulate and rearticulate and enact missions, and, and to do it so fulsomely and so well. So I, I can't not be proud of the organization for all those reasons. I agree with everything Therese has, has said, and um, I think it's important for people to, to realize, you know, people who are um, members of the coalition, um, but also beyond how incredibly hard, and I'm, I'm not trying to praise myself here. I'll talk about other people on the board, but how incredibly hard folks work 
and how they give of their own resources. Yeah, they give of their own resources and how very um, thought thoughtful and I don't want to say sort of torturously thoughtful, but <laughs> um, but there's there's just a lot of really self sort of self-aware and uber metacognitive <laughs> stuff going on that I, I don't think, you know, beyond the executive board and the advisory board, I don't know how you would make that known. Yeah. Uh, I guess transparency is part of it. Um, but just the, the, the people who are leading the organization, who've led the organization since I've been a part of it, have by and large been incredibly committed to being ethical to um to being supportive to to exploring all options to to feminist approaches to um <clears throat> to the field to scholarship and to mentoring and teaching and and so i think i mean i'm really aware of that just because i've been involved i've been on the advisory board for i don't know 10 years maybe a long time now and it would just uh i wish there was some way to make that more widely recognized or known outside of that that sort of leadership group well i'll let you off here now uh, i don't know what time zone you're in but i hope that you enjoy a good evening and have great weather and um yeah so it was great to meet and chat with both of you and I hope you enjoyed our collaboration with the Coalition of Feminist Scholars in the History of Rhetoric and Composition. I want to direct you to their website, cwshrc.org, and urge you to consider joining this organization. Check out the membership benefits listed on the website, including coalition members are eligible to attend the biennial Feminisms and Rhetorics Conference, and to publish in Patho, the peer-reviewed online journal. Membership also comes with additional benefits, including the opportunity to achieve mentoring through one of our several mentoring venues, to serve on the Coalition's advisory and executive boards, or to work on one of their several task forces. Coalition members are eligible to receive awards, scholarships pertaining to their work in feminist rhetorics, and or the history of rhetoric and composition. As we approach the end of our second season and look towards season three, which will include the production of our 50th episode, I'm asking you to please write a review for the podcast. By writing a review, you will help the podcast's visibility across platforms on which the podcast is available. That's the primary thing we need right now as we take the next steps in expanding our reach. Thank you for your help with this. Okay, rhetorical listeners, make sure to download all episodes of The Big Rhetorical Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on Twitter at The Big Ret and find us on Facebook. You can email the podcast at thebigrhetorical at gmail.com.
cafepress.com. And you can buy merch from our online store, cafepress.com slash tbrpodmerch. Until next time, be kind to one another and always be listening rhetorically.